The question I want to ask at the start is, who are the poor? The gospel is good news to the poor, great, but who are the poor? Um, I think as you go through the Bible, what you realise is, is the poor are basically those who realise they've got a need. If you realise you're in need, you qualify as the poor. The poor, it's a lot more subtle than those who have money, those who have ample physical provisions and those who don't. It's a lot more subtle than that. You can find someone with nothing, but they, in their heart, refuse to acknowledge their need. And they're kind of puffed up in their heart. And they don't qualify as the poor biblically. You can find someone with a lot of money in multiple houses and whatever else, but who's desperately broken on the inside and realises something's missing. It's the poor. Now, normally, or most commonly, the poor are those who are materially impoverished. And that's because when you have all you need in quotes around you in life, enough money, enough clothes, enough food, enough of the temporary stuff, you can tend to be cushioned to the fact that you're in deep need. You can tend to be cushioned to your spiritual need. You don't feel it as much. You can almost be like inoculated by all the stuff. And you, when you just when you get to the place where you're feeling, well, maybe there's more to life than this, more stuff. And just deadens, deadens that sense more and more. And so most commonly it's those who have, can't put enough food on the table or, or feel the pain of not being able to clothe their children properly. Or, or one way or another, the, the pressures of life have brought them to a point where they see their need, that that can open up a doorway to see spiritual need. And so more, most commonly, the poor are the materially poor, but not always. It is more subtle than that. It's those who, are, who know their need, who see they've got a need. And in the Bible, God is often presented as, as the defender of the poor. God is presented as the one who loves to, phrases like, lift the poor out of the ash heap and sit them with princes. That's the heart of God. He, want, he loves to come and uh, meet those who have got nothing and know it. Uh, those who are crying out in desperation. He says to the people of Israel, who are uh, slaves in Egypt, I've heard your sighs. I've heard your groaning. I want to come and rescue you. It's the heart of God. That's the heart of God for the poor. The Bible talks about the uh, fatherless and the widows and says their redeemer is strong. God has a big heart for the fatherless. Particularly in that society in those days, if you had no father, there was no provision, there was no protection. You're extremely vulnerable. And God has a special eye on those people. God has a bias to the poor. He does. He has a bias to the poor. Why? Because God loves justice and the poor down there. God wants to even it out. Not because he loves the poor person more per se, but he hates the situation. So his heart is moved and stirred towards them in their need. And he he has has a special place in his heart. It's the reality um, of what the Bible shows us. Um, God loves justice. God loves it when, when, when things are straightened out. God hates it when people are stuck in cycles, generational cycles of poverty, generational cycles of the have-nots. hates that. And um, one of the, well, the main way he looks to put that right is through his church. <gasps> Feel the responsibility. We'll look at that as we go. Let's start our creation. A creation, we've got Adam and Eve, the richest people to have ever lived on the planet. Everything was theirs. Think of the most amazing cars you've seen over the last week. Think of the most amazing house you've seen over the last year. Think of everything amazing you've ever seen on the planet. All of it hidden in this, in this planet at the moment of creation. Every raw element, everything to make everything we see. Think about your most favourite food. Every herb, spice and creature running around brought together to make that wonderful meal. 
Everything, everything was given and entrusted to them. This God says this to them in, in Genesis 1. If we look at our uh, first slide here, sorry about the dotty writing you're about to see. Uh, take my word for it, it does say the things I'm about to read. That's uh, alright. Don't worry, we're used to glitches. What about those glitches on the aeroplanes yesterday, eh? Terrible. Uh, so God created man, small talk, I never do small talk, did you notice that? It was a historic moment. Uh, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's all yours. It's all yours. You've got it all. There's no sense at this point that there's going to be any pressures in life, any struggles, any trials. It's all, the, it's all theirs. It's given to them. God entrusts it to them. God blesses them as they go forward and multiply and look after the planet. I want you to just... Take note of that. They're rich. The richest people to have ever lived on the planet. This is Adam and Eve, all entrusted to them. Creation will gladly yield its treasures to them. Okay? Creation will happily give to these people made in the image of God. All that is hidden. You know, every, every diamond hidden in the mountain, every raw element hidden in among the rocks will be yielded up gladly, happily to this man and this woman and their descendants made in the image of God. That's the original plan of God. It's supposed to be incredibly fruitful, joyfully fruitful with ease. That's why when life isn't like that, we feel it, it hurts. Even though we know that's the reality, it still hurts. There's still something in us that says, it shouldn't be like this. Why? Because it shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't. It's not God's original plan. Okay? And then what we see is in Genesis chapter 3, very early on, is that Satan comes along in the form of a serpent. serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit, fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be richer. Yes, you're rich. But you could be richer. Yes, you've got it all, but you could have more. That's the lie. And God is, is something in God's heart, Satan says, that wants to keep you from that. There's something restrictive in God's heart. He doesn't want you to be, you know, you were made for more, even greater things than this. In fact, you're made to be just like God. Go on, make a leap for the throne. That's the satanic lie. Leap for the throne, go for it. You're made to be like God, equal. You can be richer, you can have it all. That's the temptation. It comes in from Satan at the start. They obey him, they believe him, they're deceived. She's deceived, she eats from the fruit, she gives it to her husband, he eats. They both sin, and then we're told in that moment, watch what happens, very interesting. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So they're rich. They sin and then suddenly they become aware of their need. Notice that. Suddenly it's like, oh my goodness, look at you, look at me. Something's wrong, something's missing. They become poor. And then they try and fix it themselves. Classic human condition. We're aware of our need, let's fix it ourselves. We'll, we'll find a way, we'll make a way. We don't need God, we'll, we'll figure it out. One way or another, we'll figure it out. Their answer is uh, fig leaves uh, and, and loincloths. Uh, we won't go into that one yet, it's okay. 
Sorry, I shouldn't have craned my neck towards it, should I? It's my fault. Their answer is fig leaves and loincloths. And then when God comes, notice, when God comes to the garden, they run and hide. And God says, why are you hiding? He says, well, I'm naked. Was he naked? No, they just made fig leaves. Wasn't naked. Wasn't naked at all. But in the presence of God, their own efforts at fixing their problem are so pathetic, it might as well be. You notice that? It's really important. Because you can try and fix your life. You can try and figure it out. Do it yourself. We'll make it better. I'll fix this. I'll solve that. Or we'll patch it up. And it may seem like, okay. But, but when you come to face the Lord, when you meet the Lord, which we all will. The Bible says that at the end of time, we'll all stand before his throne. Actually, you just feel like naked. You just feel totally exposed. You don't have to fix it yourself. That's the good news. You haven't got to solve it. You, haven't, you can't fix your problem. And uh, actually, God's, God's got better for you than that. So it's a one, that's why it's good news. God's got better for you than that. But anyway, God holds them to account. They've fallen, and, and he, brings this, he brings this judgment on them at, at this point. He says, uh, he says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for your dust and to dust you'll return. So suddenly, actually the creation is not going to yield its treasures in the same way. It will have enough to eat and they'll have enough to get by, but it's going to be take sweat. Life will be frustrating. There'll be a sense of futility about it and it'll end in death. That wasn't how it was going to be before before they sinned. It wasn't going to be like that. It was going to be really fruitful, and it wasn't going to end in death. There was a tree in the garden called the tree of life. They were allowed to eat freely from, and live forever. But now there's this frustration, there's this futility, and there's death. Let me just pause for a moment and just just reflect on life. I'm not trying to. Um, I haven't got to sort of whip anything up. Just reflect on life. This is a, speaks for itself in terms of its authenticity. There's a frustration. About life. Oh, this will solve it, and it never does. Oh, this will fix it. Isn't it the next thing? Always promising. Oh, this will sort- Once I've sorted that out, then life will be something else comes along. Not that life's always terrible, but it's never. You never reach that point of ah. The Bible calls shalom, complete restoration, wholeness. There's always a sense of oh, man, our lives. Here we go again. It's just life in a fallen world, and then it ends in death. And that's because of because of, this is God's judgment on their on their sin. Um, so it's a dark moment. They've become poor. They've tried to fix it themselves. They've been exposed. And God says, you know, life's going to be different now. There's, there's, a, there's something about you now, which is, as a result of you listening to Satan, there's a poverty thing going on with you now. A poverty is satanic in its root. Having that, that, that lack, it's a, it's a satanic thing. He promises you can have more than what God gives. And when you believe it, you end up with far, far less than you had. That's how it works. See? It's tricky. It's tricky. Deceiving. It's subtle. So that's what happened. But there's some good news. Even in, there's some good news to the poor. Even in this judgment speech, God says this to the serpent in the next slide. God says, I will put enmity between you, says Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head. That's one of Eve's offspring will bruise your head. When, when the Bible talks about bruising your head, it means a fatal wound. You will, be, will kill you. And you shall bruise his heel. And it's a prophecy of Jesus. 
It's a prophecy that actually one is going to come who's going to deal with this spirit personality at the root of all human poverty, at the root of all human frustration, futility and death. There's one coming and he's going to crush Satan and be hurt in the process. And we'll get there at the climax of the sermon. So Adam and Eve are banished from the garden and sent out to make a go of it as best they can. And God in God his mercy blesses, and uh, you read of God's mercy on people like Noah and others like that. And then we get to a man called Abraham, and we've heard a lot about. And um, through him, God says, I'm going to bless every nation of the world. And then and, and, and out of Abraham comes Isaac, then Jacob, and then the nation of Israel. And God rescues the nation of Israel out of Egypt, where they've been oppressed and where they've been very, very poor, where they've been uh, uh, mistreated, where they've been uh, abused. He brings them out and he, he sets them on their way to this wonderful promised land through the wilderness. And, and he puts some things in place with them as a nation. He puts some very important things in place. First he says to them, listen, remember where you've come from. Remember that you were oppressed. Remember that you were abused. Remember what it was like for you. And I brought you out of it. And so make sure that all those among you that are vulnerable, make sure the fatherless, make sure the widows, make sure the strangers who attach themselves to you, make sure they're looked after. God says things like, don't, don't, don't turn an evil eye to them. He says, don't do that. Have a good eye towards them. He says, when, you, when you're doing your harvesting, don't go right to the edge of the field. Leave a big bit round the edge so they can come after you and they can help themselves. See, it's the heart of God. And, it, and it always God's reasoning is, it's because that's where you came from. That, remember, don't forget, don't start thinking you're, you know, you're something else. Now remember, you were poor, you were, and so remember them now. That's always the logic. But listen, listen to how they were. This is God speaking through the prophet Zechariah. Listen to, listen to God's assessment. It says, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus is the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Don't oppress the widow, the fatherless, the traveller, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard. Wow. Lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate. So that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. They didn't remember, they didn't remember, they got proud in their heart. They got arrogant, they thought they were something better. Not only that, God set up this amazing system called the Year of Jubilee, where basically every, every 50 years, all the debts were cancelled. Imagine that. Now we know what happens at this moment, if you're here and you're moneyed, you'll think, what a terrible, what a... <laughs> you're sitting here and someone owes you money, you think, what a terrible system. That's awful. If you're here in your own money, you'll think, that's amazing. What a brilliant idea. Even slaves could go back to, you know, come out of slavery now, go, everything would be put right again. Incredible. Now, why was that? The reason why is because God did not want a nation where they got sort of systemic generational poverty. Where because you're the child of a slave, you become a slave. Or because you're the child of someone in debt, you inherit that debt. God wanted to break that, and the way he said it is every 50 years, whoop, everything back, level, level playing field. Wonderful, amazing, incredible. It gets to the heart of our selfishness, doesn't it? Oh, oh. But you see, God's thinking of the nation as a whole. He's not just thinking one or two individuals. He's got everyone in his heart. That was a wonderful system. You know, the Jews never observed it. They never observed it. 
There is no record anyone can find of the Jews ever observing the Jubilee year. Bit too radical. <laughs> Bit too extreme. It's God's heart. It's God's heart. It's his desire that in his nation there is a sense of equity. That it's not like that. It's like that. It's very challenging. And yet they were a people of hope. They were, prof- they were pumped full of hopeful prophecies. Here's one I'm going to end with before we get on to Jesus. It says this, Isaiah prophesied this in chapter 61. This is Isaiah speaking, prophesying on one level about himself, but seems to be pointing towards something even greater than himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. The day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. They might be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. This is beautiful. There's, so Isaiah's prophesying saying the spirit is on me to bring good news to the poor and we're going to take those who are poor, those who are captives, those who are crippled, those who are imprisoned and they're going to become oaks of righteousness. An oak is a big old tree that has deep, deep roots and that can provide shade for many, many people. And so the image is, is that through this, through this good news, through this gospel, through this Holy Spirit empowered good news, those people who are crippled and limping and messed up are going to become oaks of righteousness. That's what the gospel does. It's like, oh, wow. And Israel were pumped with these promises. And then the true Israelite, Jesus Christ, is born. Now here we have a very interesting situation where, like with Adam and Eve, when the rich become poor, here with Jesus... The rich becomes poor. The king of heaven comes to earth. As was read out earlier, so exciting. Two two of the scriptures I'm looking at were read out earlier. Philippians 2 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here's here's Jesus, it says he, he laid aside all his rights. It's a big deal, right? Speaking now into a, a culture built on personal, private human rights, right? Jesus laid aside all his rights, privileges of God, laid it aside, emptied himself, become a man, born in an outhouse, laid in a feeding trough. The rich becomes poor. We've had how many of it's because they sinned. With Jesus, it's because he's coming to put sin right, coming to put that mistake right. But the rich has to become poor again. But this is a different deal. This is not judgment, this is mercy. This is grace, this is amazing news. So the rich Jesus Christ becomes poor. Right at the start of his public ministry, he reads that same prophecy from Isaiah. He gets hold of a scroll in the synagogue, he unrolls it and he reads it out. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me for good, to preach good news and bring good news to the poor. He goes through it again, leaves out the bit about God's vengeance, interestingly, and then he says this. He says he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Oh my goodness. He's here. The one who's truly anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring good news to the poor. Can you imagine? Look at him saying, what is this guy saying? He's reading it in the first person. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
This is what Jesus does. He comes to bring good news to the poor. He comes to set captives free. He comes to open the eyes of the blind. It's what he does. It's what Jesus does. It's all in the person of Jesus. He lived a poor life. At times he was homeless. When some people wanted to come and follow him, he said, well, look, the birds have got nests and the, the foxes have got holes in the ground. I've got nowhere to lay my head. At times he was voluntarily homeless. He knows what it's like to be homeless. He had no spare cash. When a certain tax was demanded of him, he sent Peter down to a lake to find it in a fish's mouth. Quite a trick. But you've got to see beyond it as well. He didn't have any money to hand. He lived deliberately that way. In fact, he didn't even look after the money they did have. He didn't even look after Judas looked after it. So no accusations could stick. He didn't love money at all. His teaching was shocking. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What? Blessed are the poor in spirit? Yeah. Blessed are those who realise they haven't got it. Blessed are those who realise they've got a deep gaping hole in the middle of their soul. How are they blessed? Theirs is the kingdom. God will fill them up. What a beautiful thing. People were shocked by this kind of talk. This was new talk. Previously to that, if someone was rich, people thought they're blessed. Richness was seen as a sign of a blessing from God. And there's some truth in that. It's not totally, totally wonky, but it's way too formulaic. It's way too simplistic. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, give everything away and then follow me. And the man's face drops and he walks away sad. And the disciples are like, hold on, he's rich. And he, hold on, he, he didn't work for him. How can anyone be saved? Because Jesus said it's really hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. And they're like, well, if, if the rich and, and they're blessed and they can't, what, what about us? Because Jesus is turning things on, their head, on his head constantly. Shaking, rattling the cages of our presumptions. And if you do think this is how it works, because you live in a world that tells you this is how it works, and it's different. It's different. So he's a revolutionary, but he's a revolutionary of the heart. Didn't come to overturn the Romans with swords and daggers. He came to revolutionise every human heart. Because that's what brings real change. In Matthew chapter 25, he talks about the final judgment day where God will separate the goats on the left and the sheep on the right. And what marks them out? Oh, these are the ones who visited those in prison. These are the ones who fed the hungry. These are those who clothed the naked. And it's like, what is this? Jesus is saying, this is the stuff that's close to my heart. This is a big deal, not a small deal. You know a tree by its fruit. Jesus loved the poor. Jesus loved the, Jesus loved the people everyone else was embarrassed about. There was a beggar called Bartimaeus. He, he was blind. Here Jesus was going past. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Everyone's going, shut up, man. It's the rabbi. Talk like that. He shouted all the more. Jesus said, tell him to come over here. And then they'll start going, yeah, go on, he wants you now. People are so fickle, aren't they? What, what do you want me to do for you? Give me my sight. Jesus heals him. See, Jesus, Jesus loves the outcast. Jesus loves the poor. And then we get this staggering moment where he becomes the most poverty-stricken person to ever been on the planet. Where all the vile, disgusting darkness and horror of life in this world is piled upon him on the cross where he voluntarily opens himself up, not to just have all of that sin piled on him, but to take the judgment for that sin in his body from his Father in heaven. He volunteers to do that. 
he becomes utterly poverty stricken. The Bible puts it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What a wonderful scripture. Though he was rich, for your sake. Listen, I want to imagine for a moment you're the only person in the room. For a moment, just imagine that. For your sake. For your sake, he became poor. For your sake, he, he, he made himself the lowest. Not in just becoming a human, but then in becoming obedient to this terrible, humiliating death. Just, I mean, talk about need, talk about neediness. Everyone's left him, no friends. Stripped bare, no clothes, no, not even any covering. He's got nothing. Thirsty, tortured, alone, rejected, to- utterly poverty-stricken. Why? For your sake. But why? What does it mean? Well, so that you, by that poverty, might become rich. So that you, by that terrible thing, that cross, that moment, you think, what's that going to do for me? In that moment, him taking your poverty into himself makes a way for you to receive incredible, innumerable spiritual blessings as a gift. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means unearned favour. Out of his unearned favour, he went through that on the cross so that you could come out of your poverty and come into true riches where you're restored. You're restored, moved from that place where Adam and Eve fell and where me and you as their children have fallen, moved out of that and restored back, reconciled to God. Truly rich. That's what the gospel is. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And he offers it as the living king now because through his resurrection he's demonstrated that the job is done. It's wonderful, completed work. You becoming a Christian is about entering into the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. It's such a beautiful thing. It must be a sen- if you're a believer, there ought to be a sense of completion, a sense in your heart. It's done. I know we're on a journey with disciples, we're growing, but you know what? It's done as well. You've got to live with that sense. It's done. It's a finished work. Wonderful. Remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his favour. He was rich, but he became poor. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. What a privileged people we are. Those of us that have received Jesus Christ. One honour. And then we just take it through quickly to the new creation. The Bible teaches that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the new age is broken into our age. So we're kind of living in an in-between time where the new age has come, but it's not yet fully come, won't fully come till Jesus returns. So we're kind of straddling this now, yeah, new age, but not yet. The kingdom has come, but has not yet fully come. So what does it look like to live in this new creation that we're looking in now? Well, first, if we call ourselves Christians, you know why they first called Christians Christians, don't you? It was a mockery term. It was a mocking term. Before that, they were called disciples, or they were in their part of the way. And then in Antioch, they were first called Christians, which means little Christs. It was like, ah, they were the little Christs. Why? Well, because they were modelling their life on him. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they were saying, Jesus, you're our example. They were going around looking after the poor. They were going around being merciful. They were going around loving their enemies. And so part of us living out this new creation now, is that what God desired for Adam and Eve, what he desired for Israel... He says to you, remember where you came from. Christian, remember where you came from. Don't you dare begin to think that you're somehow better than anyone else. 
Don't you dare begin to think somehow you're more spiritual or you're this or you're that. Remember where you came from. The Bible says he pulled you out of the muck and the mire and he set your feet on the rock. All you did was that. You called out for help. And he pulled you out and he put you on the rock. Remember that. When you look at someone else and start your tutting and all of that, you know. No. No. No, it doesn't fit with the gospel. It doesn't work. It does not work. We live in the tension of the now and the not yet. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, uh, this little, um, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I said, what? Surely the powerful, the self, those who are self-assertive, they inherit the earth. He says, blessed are the meek. In this age, we're to live meekly. But the promises will inherit the earth. That out of that meekness, God will be able to entrust his people with the nations in the age to come. Because if you know anything, even just about natural politics, you'll know that it is the, the meek... People like Nelson Mandela, who can be entrusted with power. Because they don't turn it for revenge and bloodshed, but there's a, something's happened in their heart. Did you hear that said to Nelson Mandela? What, what, what do you want to be remembered for? His comment was, it would be egotistical for me to even consider that question. I just want a little stone that says, Mandela. It's wonderful, really. Nothing compared to the meekness of Jesus. Jesus is the true king of the nations. The true king. He didn't even have his own tomb. That's meekness. That's real meekness. So we live in this tension. The early church, this is how they lived, Acts 4, says the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. It's an interesting kind of... Uh, Phraseology. They did, belong, they did have stuff that belonged to them. It wasn't like all in, a, all in like a pot. They had stuff that belonged to them. But their attitude was, well, it's not really mine. They had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were given a testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And it talks about someone else who sold a field and, and did that. That's how they lived. It's radical. So I want to just stop there for a minute. It's a radical thing. They had a real concern for their local congregation who's, who's in need among us. And they took initiative. If they had extra, why? We want to level it out. Because the heart of God is to level it out. So if you recognise, there's, there's, there's stuff to be said on the wider church as well, but the context here is local church. They recognise in our local church, it's, it's wonky, I'm going to, individual people took initiative to straighten it out. Yeah, that's what they did. God's heart for the poor. God's heart for the poor. And then when Jesus returns and makes everything new, I want to read you a few verses from Revelation 21 and just taste, soak up the glory, the richness the richness of it, okay? Look at the kind of thing it's going to... The new heavens and the new earth will look like in Revelation. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls for the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's the church. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel. There it is. Like a jasper, clear as crystal. He had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel was inscribed, 
on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold. I wonder what that looked like. Imagine that. Let's take measures. Made of gold. To measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. We saw that last week, this cube. So measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, in case you was wondering. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. So it seems like the kind of golden heaven, which is just perfectly purified in every way, is akin to clear glass. Foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. First was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. Sounds pretty special, doesn't it? Not cement. It's wonderful. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. It's interesting detail. Special detail. You think, why is this amazing detail? And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And now the real treasure. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's our future. That's our future. I feel comfortable saying that at the front. I know it can sound a bit so disjointed with reality today. You think, you know, are you real? I think the reality is in our heart, hearts. We all long for that, and there's a reason why. It's what we're made for. And it's what God promises us in Christ. That's what the new creation will look like. And I want to just finish now by just a few points of, okay, what does this mean for how we should live? Just application, then we're done. First, like I said earlier, remember where you came from. Remember who you are. But remember where you came from. Do all you can to resist spiritual pride, sense of being better than others. Okay, love the poor because you was poor. You, if you're a Christian, you, you, if I if I meet a Christian who does not have a sense of the fact that they were poor, I have to question if they're a Christian. Because you, you, no one comes to Christ unless they feel their need for Christ. That's, that is surely the precursor to coming to Christ. You feel your need to be saved. So remember, remember where you've come from. Secondly, tell people about Jesus. <laughs> tell people about Jesus. One old bishop from a long time ago described telling people about Jesus as one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread. Yeah? I found, I found the bread of life. It's Jesus. It's a responsibility on us to share this bread of life. You know? If you have got food on you, and you see someone, and you know they're genuinely hungry, I would all feel a responsibility. I'll give you some. Yes, we've got the bread of life. We've got to take it seriously to, to tell people about Jesus. Thirdly, we've got to get our house in order. That's a real priority to get our house in order as a church. I'll show you this scripture here. Um, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's, it, it's no good helping people outside the church if people inside the family are, are, are not being looked after. We've got to get our house in order. There's a priority, there's an order here. 
It would be a bit like me saying, yeah, come, come round to my place for lunch. And, you know, all the kids were hungry. I mean, what's that about? You've got to feed your kids. So we have to get our house, otherwise it's, it's a bit hypocritical. And what are we bringing people into? We do need to, we need to, we need to do that. It's really important. And then, last but one. If you're here today and you sense your need, you, you, you actually, you know your need. And I guess I'm talking to those of you now at this stage who maybe... Maybe you were, you were Christians once, you followed Jesus once, you know, but you've kind of turned away. Or maybe you're clear that you're not a Christian or, you know, you're, you're just, you don't even quite know where you're at. But you have a sense of need. I want to just say this, Jesus does love to meet your need. He does love to meet your need. Um, but it's on his terms. It's on his terms. But he loves to meet your need. But sometimes you speak to people and it's like, how can I put it, um... You ask them, like, what, what is it that you want from Jesus? And, and they say one thing, and that thing's fine, but you think, but there's more Jesus wants to do. So, for example, some, once there was four friends who brought a paralysed friend to Jesus, and they cut a hole in the roof uh, and, and let their friend down, because they couldn't get through the crowds. And, and so they, they come so their friend could be healed. But Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. That's not why they came. They came to get him healed. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, why is this? Why? Well, and then Jesus healed him, right? So Jesus loves to heal. But Jesus knows what's most important. Sins forgiven. Because once your sins are forgiven in Jesus, you can be reconciled to God. And that's the most important thing. That's what we all need more than anything else. And so, if you, you know, you may think, well, I'm here, and I want Jesus to heal me. Great, we would love to pray for you, for Jesus to heal you. Many people came to Jesus and just said, heal me, and Jesus healed them. We would love to do that. But I also want to say, do you know what? He can do a whole lot more than that. He can forgive your sins. And he can reconcile you to God. And what that means is, is that God by his spirit comes and lives inside of you, so you actually know him. Okay, that's what, that's what I'm talking about. And it's like eternal life begins in you now, in your heart. It's a wonderful thing. And it's, it's the experience of every true Christian. And I'll, I'll say, Jesus can do that for you. So maybe Jesus would say to you today, what can I do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And if you just think, yeah, I feel my need, and I, I'd love someone to pray with me, we would love to pray with you. Just come and find us, come and find me, and just say, hey, please, I'd love Jesus to forgive my sins. I, I'd love to, I, I, I recognise, I need forgiveness, and I want, to start, I want to start freshly with Jesus. Tell you what, Jesus will be attracted to that heart like a magnet. Because it's like someone who rec- is actually recognising that they need help, and they're not getting their fig leaves out, you know. He'll come and he'll meet you there and bless you there. So please do come and see us on that front. And then finally, I want to end on this. I want to say that ministries like CAP, Christians Against Poverty, where we help those in debt, and our food bank, we're probably feeding between 40 and 50 people a week now, and a homeless breakfast club, and looking to bless you know, prisoners and ex-prisoners and help them you know, sort of find their way back into community. All these things, and hopefully by, by God's grace, a whole load of other stuff that God brings us into, what, what, what we might call mercy ministries, these essentials of God's heart, and whether or not you are, you are massively involved, hands-on, with these things, it must be in the centre of all of our hearts. Okay? Whether it's praying, whether it's resourcing financially, whether it's frontline stuff, I tell you, it is so close to the heart of God that we've got to, we've got to be, have big enough hearts to embrace it. Whether it's just befriending someone on a Sunday. Whether it's welcoming someone into your gospel community that's just is particularly in need. This, we've, we've, as, a, as a church, God wants us to have that heart because it's His heart. 
And we've got to let him work in us. We've got to let him work, work, break down our fears, break down our prejudices, break down whatever it is, okay? You've got to let God do that. Um, and the bottom line of it is God is saying, remember, remember who you are, remember where you've come from. Yeah, you are not in a different category. And there'll be numbers of us in this room. I don't know who knows. There'll be numbers of us in this room. If we hadn't known Jesus, we would be obviously very poor. Obviously very, very needy. I'm one of them. It would have been obvious. There are others in this room who, if you hadn't known Jesus, it may not be so obvious. You might have done well, in quotes, in life. You might have had a good job. You might have had a hold together a family. But you know what? We were all in the same boat. That's the great leveller. We were all born in sin and in desperate need of grace. And that's what God gives us in Jesus. Amen?